Great. How are you? Welcome to the Christians in Sport podcast. This is the place where if you want to understand about life at the top level of sport and how Christian faith affects it, you are so at the right place. Because today I'm interviewing Linvoy Primus, MBE. Linvoy, 17 years as a pro, 433 league games, half of those at Portsmouth, and a career really which spans two halves. He calls it, in my interview, an apprenticeship about being a professional from 92 to 2000 at Charlton, Barnet and Reading. And then the whole second half, 2000 to 2009 at Portsmouth, a big chunk of which was in the Premier League. As you listen to him, here are some things that you really should listen for. They captured my imagination as I was talking with him. Listen to him talk about the fear factor. Not just the fear factor as a boy to get your first contract, but your second And then as an experienced player, your third contract. Listen to him talk about the loneliness of being a star. Everybody knows you, but you just don't know who your real friends are. And finally, listen to the incredible story of how he finds peace in the midst of a top-level career with all the pressures when he becomes a follower of Jesus. The Christians in Sport podcast with Graham Daniels. Linvoy, you're an 11-year-old boy. Twice a week, you're going from Forest Gate to Greenwich to train at Charlton. And here's a few things that you say looking back on that period. The one thing I worked out as a kid, it was dog-eat-dog. They were ambitious and aggressive parents pushing their kids on those training sessions. And yet, it was a very strong character-building experience for me as a young boy. Can you explain that? For me, it was when you're thinking uh, as an 11-year-old that you're playing football for fun, you're you're with your mates on a, a Sunday, um, just a Sunday team, and, and you start to realise that when you get into a professional place, it's it's a different atmosphere. You know, you, you sense that these guys, they all want to be pros as much as me, but there isn't no fun anymore because the parents around are, uh, are giving advice. You've got the coach giving advice. You, the training structure changes. You know, the detail that they're giving you, you have to... Remember, you can't just go past it and think, oh, you know, I don't need to listen to that. You have to take it on. And, and the seriousness goes to a really high level. So that, that moment of thinking this is dog eat dog was because there was a moment when I wanted to, I thought I was going to play a game and uh, I turned up to the game, trained really well, turned up to the game and uh, the manager said I wasn't playing, that there was a trialist coming in. And I thought to myself, if there's a trialist coming in, he could take my place. And that was the moment the reality kicked in that, Lynn, this isn't, you know, your mates and you're all here for fun to win a game. These are people looking to make careers. And knowing that at that young age just uh, inspired me to try and do that little bit more, try and be that bit better. And I realised I, I didn't have as much ability as some of the other guys. Some of the other players were, were a lot better than me. So it was, a, it was a sense of trying to make the things better that I could control but also understand that these guys, they want it as bad as me, so I need that cutting edge, and I didn't know what it was. And the only thing I could remember was saying, this is dog eat dog. I probably heard it from a parent from somewhere else, but um, it, that's just something that stuck with me. Were you scared in this period? Can you remember moments? Can you think of a moment when you were scared that you wouldn't be a footballer? Yes. Give us an example of when, it, when that happened. It was, a, it was a regular thought for me that you're in this position, you're in this place, this club, you're in a, an elite club, and you see, that, you know, even to get the kit, you know, Charlton Athletics kit 
was something special because I didn't even own a kit before that. You know, I was a bit of a Tottenham fan, a West Ham fan. I couldn't afford to buy a kit. So to play in that club's kit was amazing. And uh, But you also knew that you saw it happening to other players that they'd be in and out of the team. And when they were out of the team, their reaction was, oh, no, it's over. So you're then thinking, if that happens to me, is it over for me? And, you know, I'd come home from training after a day at school and uh, be quite tired and think, play, replay in my mind what, you know, what the training session was like. Did I do something wrong? Oh, I did, I messed up. You know, I was scared to kick the ball. Uh, okay, I won't take that risk next time. I'll do something in, that's safe. And there was fear. There was fear there. And like I say, I always reflect back to playing with my friends Sunday morning. You know, we'd win a game, we'd lose a game. We'd go back home on the bus, have a bit of a laugh on the bus. But this was different. You know, if you lost, the, the coach told you why you lost and you weren't good enough and things like that. So it was really in your face and totally different from what I was used to. So there was a fear factor. Now, we'll come back to some of the fear factor issues later because a lot of us might think you can see that you're like that when you were a young boy mm. trying to make your pathway in football. However, I think that when I hear your story, actually... That uncertainty doesn't go away for some years. Mm. So you make it. That's what we'd say. You sign as a professional for Charlton. You make your debut for them against Birmingham City in 1992. And having got into the team, you might think, yeah, I'm there. And yet the following season, you don't play one first team game. That must have been tough when you think you've landed as a professional. Definitely. You know, when I set out to be a footballer, a professional footballer, I thought getting that contract at 18 years old, that was it. I'd be a professional forever. And to know that I got past so many good players to get that contract, I thought, I've, I'm here. This is this is going to be the best thing ever. And I remember coming out of the, just before I'd signed, just after I'd signed the contract and the manager was saying, you know, congratulations, you've done very well to get this. But he said, your next contract's going to be even harder. You can imagine I've gone from like being as high as anything to, oh no. Because what he said, he said, you're going to be competing against men who are paying their mortgages, who are sending their children to school, who are looking after their families, and they think you're going to take their space. So straight away, that fear (laughs) kicks back in that you can't make a mistake here. You know, you, you're in a position where, actually, to get into the team, you've got to knock someone out of the team. To stay in the team, you've got to make sure you're playing at the best or training at your best. And you can't show any weakness in that in, at that time e- either because you're in a man's environment. So I bottled up the fear. I bottled up everything. So when I made my debut, I thought to myself, I feel like I should be here. I felt really confident. I sh- you know, I should be here. Then six games later, I'm out of the team. Following season, I don't play any games, but I, was, I had problems with injuries as well. I had a lot of issues with training every day. I was growing physically. I was changing, you know, with muscle mass and things like that. So I'm trying to work out who I am in all of this. And then uh, the manager's not playing me. So it's like, oh, no, I am rubbish. I, I have failed, but I can't let the people on the outside, all my friends know that I'm struggling. And it was, uh, I always describe it, that the internal battle at that point was huge. But you know what I always had? I had a fire in my belly. I had a fire that, that made me want to succeed. I had a fire that wanted to prove people wrong. You know, and I was the youngest in my family as well. So I was always, you know, <laughs> that competition with my brother or my dad always made me think, no, I'm going to prove, I'm going to beat them. I'm going to beat them. And I think I carried that through. And even at the hardest times, I, I sort of, 
speak to myself and say, no, come on, you've, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. But that year was hard. That year not playing was difficult. That year passes by, your injuries are growing, you're mm. establishing yourself, and your manager's words then mm. uh, become true. Yeah. It, it is hard to get your second contract, yeah. but you get it. Yeah. You don't get it at Charlton, you've got to barn it. Yeah. It starts nicely, play against Orient. Mm. Now, th- this story gets more cheerful as time goes by, <laughs> <laughs> I promise you. So don't switch off, don't be depressed. Uh, this boy plays 17 years and he plays in the Premier League. But but what matters here to me, you see, is that a lot of people who listen to this podcast are young elite players. It's the parents, actually, of young elite level players in their teens. Yeah. And indeed, it's established elite football, sports, people of all types yeah. who listen to this podcast and feel what you're feeling now. Yeah. So that's why it's important that we drag it out and, and, and pull it out a bit. You go to Barnet, you get a second contract, if you like, then as a pro, 94, fine Orient debut, and then... Uh, you're on record as saying your appearance against Scarborough, your second game in the first team at Barnet, a bloke in the crowd says, uh, that is the worst player we've ever had at Barnet. <laughs> and and you have said that was the worst performance of your career because you were weighed down by mm. the burden of expectation. You know, 20 years of age. Yeah. Still tough then. Oh, without a doubt. You know, I, I was that moment of being released from Charlton set, some things going in my head that said if you don't do well you're not going to get a contract so I knew that the performances that I needed to uh, have at Barnet had to be at a high level because a number of the players remembered my debut a number of them knew that I'd come from a higher division I'd gone into a dressing room where there's a lot of older players who the manager was trying to move out I was taking their place so I could feel that tension and, uh, and going into that game, I always remember on that bus thinking, I can't wait for this game to finish. I, it hadn't even started, you know. I'm just looking around, I'm looking at my new teammates and thinking, I've got to perform. And the, this, this fit, not even fear, but this knot in my belly that just, you know, it literally drained every bit of energy from me. And on that pitch, the first, the warm-up didn't feel right. It was a warm day, you know, the first game of the season. It's normally the hottest day of the year. Preparation for the game, you're not thinking of your water or stuff like that. It's not as good as, as it is today. But that moment, the, the, we have centre, ball comes back to me and I think, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I try to kick the ball. There's no power in my legs. And then someone groans next to me. I don't even know who it is. And it's like everything, the ground could have just opened up at that point. And for the first half, it was like I wasn't there. And I didn't want to touch the ball. And I'd do something good, but I still remember the bad thing as well. So it was a real, it, again, it was a moment that even when you mention it, it's like, oh, send shivers down my spine. Yeah, and it's interesting. When you do an interview and, and people are listening to it, of course, they can't see the facial expressions. You can't see them now. You can't see them as you're listening to me. He shivered physically. <laughs> Linboy Primus just shivered uh, as I even asked him the question about that. You said out when you go to Barnet, so you said at the time that you were going to prove Charlton wrong. And despite the Scarborough game, you go on to do that. You become top man at Barnet. In fact, you go for a big fee to Reading. You climb the leagues again in 97. Now, this is interesting for me. You start to look like a seasoned pro. Two contracts under your belt. You know somebody fancies you. They pay big money for you. But in the end, you leave there because you think they're taking the mickey financially. You're stronger now then. What happens? I think that... That moment of knowing that you, you've moved up into the league, uh, a higher league again, you're in a league that the, the club, Charlton, said I wasn't good enough to play in. 
Uh, so you're in that league. And we had a bit of a funny time uh, as a club uh, because we were moving from Elm Park to the Majeski Stadium. Money wasn't being spent on the squad. It was more about the facility, the infrastructure for the club to move forward. And uh, But we went through a bit of a, a dip, went through relegation, and then a lot of new players were coming in and the wage structure had changed. Now, leading to this, I'd had a few injuries. I'd played through the injuries. Um, I felt like I was a, an established player in the squad. Again, you're sort of overcoming the uh, the doubts of a new manager coming in. Is he going to keep you, isn't he? And things like that. And then my old teammate uh, became manager, and that was Alan Pardew. So when the contracts were, were coming up for renewal, I knew, again, the, the pay structure, and I thought, well... I was considered one of the three or four better players in the team. So I thought I'd be rewarded in that way. And you know, it's like players start speaking to you, what's happening with your contract? You know, you, you're going to sign a new one. I'm like, yeah, I'll sign a new one if it's right. And then uh, then they're telling me, well, I think so-and-so's on that. And I think so-and-so's on that. And I'm thinking, right, okay, that's giving me a little more uh, to work with. And then um, when the negotiation started, it was I, I was shocked. I remember having a conversation with, them, uh, with Alan a day before a game and uh, he told me what they were going to offer and it it rocked me you know I went into <laughs> I went into the game I, I spoke to my a good friend uh, a guy called Lee Hodges spoke to him about it and he said no that's not right Lynn. that's not right definitely don't accept it and I went into the game as a way at Oldham and um, I played that game with the thought of I can't believe he's offered me that contract. And I had the worst, you know, second worst game in my career. (laughs) (laughs) But it affected me. And then in the end, I thought, you know what? I've put my body on the line many times. There was stuff going on away from football that wasn't great. And it might have been an excuse just to maybe settle things down and uh, try and pull out as much as I could because I had got to a stage where I'd proved a lot of people wrong, especially Charlton, and I, I, you know, I had no enemies there. And it was like, well, what's the next thing I can do to, to enjoy this football career the way I'm supposed to, what I think, the way I'm supposed to enjoy it? And I thought financially there's going to be you know, a bit more satisfaction if I can get the right contract. So I pushed and pushed. They pushed back. There was a couple of stories that went in the paper that were untrue. I didn't, you know, didn't defend them. I didn't go back with my own story. I just let them say what they had to say. And in the end, I thought, you know what, I'm done. I'm done. And I'd had a couple of issues with agents as well. So in my head, it was me against the world. You know, I, I, I've got to fight the world now. And then when I refused the last contract... Alan said, I can't believe you're going to do this. And I said, well, I just feel like I'm in that position where I can. I don't know where I'm going to go. There was nothing lined up. But I just felt, I'm, you know, this is the right choice for decision for my wife, my children and myself. And we'll, we'll work out the best way we can. Fascinating talking with you like this. Because even though I've known you a long time, mm. you see the steel. Yeah. You see the inevitable strength that you have to have to play in front of thousands of people, yeah. to see off a number of people who want your job. Yeah. And even in your body language, I can see how you talk about that period. Mm-hmm. You're now longer than most people end up in professional football. You're, you're eight years into a career here. Yeah. You've carried a lot of injuries. It's the old Bosman rule. Yeah. But you can go for free and get money from the club who takes you, and you end up at Pompey. Now, this is interesting. Before we go any further, yeah. tell me some of the players in the back four, back five with you at Pompey, over the years, go on, give me, give me okay. a snapshot. Uh, Sean Derry's obviously in yeah, there because Sean's he came with United yeah. managers, right. obviously yeah, in there. Yeah. Who else Good was Sean. in there with you in the back five? So in that back four, uh, Justin Edinburgh. Um, he came from Tottenham to, to Portsmouth. Darren Moore, Sol Campbell. You had Glenn Johnson. You had Herman Horiderson. 
Sylvain Distan, and it just goes on and on because there was a period of time that it seemed like every week we had either a, a league winner signing for us, a Champions League winner signing for us, and there was little me in the mix, you know. So, um, so there was there's some stars, and then you know you go up the other end of the pitch, strikers. You had Jermaine Defoe, Peter Crouch, Yakubu, Teddy Sheringham. Kanu, Benjani, and then me, you know, <laughs> me in the mix. So it's a Did real... it feel like that, Len? It did. It did. International break, it'd just be me and <laughs> Harry. All the rest are gone. <laughs> you know, all the others were internationals and gone. But it didn't I didn't feel intimidated by it. I felt that I'd earned the right to be there. And I felt that those eight years, I, I've never looked at it as the years. I've just looked at it that I've played in all the divisions. And that was my apprenticeship to go into that level of football. And, you know, there's still the, the worry that if you're going uh, of if you're going to be in part of that team and things like that, there's still that in the background, but it wasn't as loud. And and I, and I know, and we, we didn't mention it, but I know that period at Barnet was where I grew up, was where I had to face the seasoned pros, where I had to pay a mortgage, pay my rent and understand that the performances that, and, and the results would have a significant effect on my lifestyle as well. So even though I felt like I wasn't handling it well, that preparation at Barnet allowed me to go through to the Premier League and play alongside and with uh, some stars and feel comfortable there. This is a, a big period of change in your life. You've been with Trish since you're a young boy, yeah. 17, you have a family, yeah. you have a home, you're playing in the Premier League, but you've intimated earlier that when you were at Reading, there were issues you faced. Yeah. Uh, tell me about the, the wider life you're living now and the way you're handling life yeah. when you're at this level of football. So at Reading, we move out of London for the first time. You know, the, the shops closed at six o'clock. That was our first culture shock. You know, London boy, everything's open 24-7. Uh, we could see the stars at night, you know, <laughs> things like that. There was, there was a lot of things to adjust to. And I know they, they, they're minor things, but there was a lot of things to adjust to as a young couple that you think to yourself, well, you should just take it in your stride. But you're working that out. We moved on to a, a lovely estate where we were the youngest couple on the estate. We were known as the footballer and his wife. There was an expectation of how we had to live because of what was seen on TV. And we always said as a couple that, you know, we, we keep it real. There's no there's no airs and graces about us. And we invited people into our house. We go to uh, other people's houses. But we realised, we soon picked up that it wasn't actually about the friendship. It was about the job that I'd done. And then we got into a, a moment where somebody invited us around for a meal and there was a lot of Reading fans there as well. And it was like we were the trophy, you know, uh, the trophy family to bring in. And and, and we, because we were having a bad time at the club, um, they started to say things about the players who were my teammates. And I was coming back with some things. And, and at the end of the party, just said, you know what, no, I'm not going to do that again. So we isolated ourselves and we try to stay connected with our friends in London but obviously our lives have changed our lifestyles have changed so where we could go and what we wanted to do was very different from the friends that we had in London so there was a little bit of a disconnect and we became very lonely uh, isolated and lonely and from the outside we had it you know the house the cars the the family and it looked like we should have been really happy but in that period of time Trish became unwell and for the first time in our lives, we are, even though we, it seemed like we had everything, actually we felt empty, uh, that loneliness, like I mentioned before, and, um, and this space of who are, we, who are we enjoying this with? And then 
you start to look at what's going on at the football club with my contract, new managers, uncertainty. It was like a real concoction of, of, of what life is about. But I think we didn't have anybody outside that we could trust to say, look, we're struggling. And, uh, and no one could believe we're struggling because, you know, I'm the footballer and everything's supposed to be OK. So there was a lot of things happening in that period of time. And that's where you start to, to ground life you start to say, what's important now? You know, is it another contract with more money? Is it your wife's health? Is it your life, the life that you thought was going to make you as happy as you're going to possibly be? Is it worth parking that to get to this place of you want the simple things and, and want to enjoy those simple things? So all that was going through my head. And I always reflect back to when I was eight years old, watching, you know, a cup final, seeing Ricky Villa score an amazing goal and thinking, that's what I want to do, not realising what he'd done that day would influence me so much, but what would come with it. I didn't realise there was a, a package that came with being a footballer or a sports person. And that package is, you know, you, can, you describe it as life, but it's how you handle that. I didn't really feel that I had support or I didn't really look for support from uh, older pros or people outside the game because I didn't want to show any weakness either. So it was a real, it was an interesting uh, time for me. And amongst all that, I still had to go onto the pitch and perform. So there was a sense of still trying to get out and do the thing that I should be doing with all this noise. I used to call it noise in the background. And, um, and it somehow, you know, I was able to do that. You and Trish come to a, a Christian faith. This is the Christians in Sport podcast. Uh, we, we try and think about playing at the highest level of sport and the relationship between that and a person's faith in Jesus Christ. In this period then between Reading and Portsmouth, uh, you, you come to an adult faith. You have a Christian parents, a yeah. Christian home as a little boy, but you come to an adult faith. Talk us through that little period of when you knew that you had an, a faith of your own mm, in Christ. Yeah, I think I started to search. I probably started to search when I, from when I got released from Charlton as a 20-year-old. I used to pray before games, say, God, let us win. Uh, if we won, I didn't say thank you. <laughs> if we lost, I was like, oh, there ain't no God. And I was always in a space of, I'm not quite sure. This God seems distant. This God doesn't seem real enough to me because I think well, football became my god. You know, I, I gave my whole life into football. When the moment came when my faith became real, there was a, a real, I suppose the light came on that, Lynn, all that you've lived for hasn't satisfied you. And when someone explained to me that, you know, the life that you're supposed to live can only come about by you knowing Jesus because God loves you, he's got a plan for your life, and you know, but you've got to reconnect with him. It just made sense. But because I was in a room with uh, other Christians, I thought, I wonder if they're brainwashing me here. You know, is a real, is this real? Have I, have I just discovered something? And then I started to question and ask more things and just wanting some things to affirm to me that this was real. And, and in the end, I just saw... In the Christian uh, men and women, in their eyes, I saw peace and I saw hope. And I thought, that's what I want. I want that. So I then went on to ask about how you become a Christian. And they spoke to me about saying a prayer and just accepting Jesus into your life, recognise that you've done bad in your life. And I thought, I haven't done many bad things. 
Then I start to think, oh, yeah, maybe I have. Oh, yeah, that tackle, that... Yeah, okay, then, yeah, I've done some bad things. And and they said, it's as simple as saying a prayer. And at that point, I said that prayer, and nothing dramatic happened at that point. And I questioned, am I really a Christian? But then um, six weeks later, with Darren Moore, I mentioned earlier, and the, uh, the club chaplain, Mick Mellows, uh, we're doing a Bible study because I, I was still asking more questions. They pray for me, and in that moment, they pray for me, peace. From you know the top of my head to the tip of my toes, peace. And I've been searching for that. If, the, if you said to me, Linvoy, if you play football and you can have this, peace, that's what I thought I was going to get, but I never found it uh, in football. Uh, and they pray for me, and that's when there was a, my life changed. That's when my real life started. And in, it happened in the back room of a house. You know, it wasn't in a, a church building or every any place where I thought that's where it should happen. It happened somewhere totally different. And that gave me even more realisation that this is real. This is real. And, and from that moment, I, said, I just said, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. And, um, and then that transferred into to many, many things. And in the years to follow, uh, you're a Premier League footballer. Yeah. You're a Christian. Some years later, when you have to retire, your knee's really causing you all sorts of trouble. Yeah. Uh, and certainly from 207, mm. you, you're really struggling to make a living here. But Portsmouth keep giving you contracts. Yeah. <laughs> and when you do have to quit, mm. uh, 209, you get a testimonial. Yeah. And, and the club renames a whole stand <laughs> after you for your services to the football club. And in 2015, you get an MBE for your services to football and charity because yeah. of your work with Faith in Football, with Mick Mellows and yeah. Darren Moore and others uh, that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Do you think that your Christian faith had an impact on the man you've become that is awarded an MBA for his services to football and charity, the naming of a stand? Yeah. Where does what Jesus has done create that human being? You know what, well, I'll say being a Christian, uh, knowing Jesus as my saviour, definitely impacted my football career and it impacted me as a as a person because I, I always thought that I was just a footballer. The the troubles that I spoke about at Charlton, at Reading, uh, that I took into Portsmouth as well, all of a sudden, I wouldn't say they disappeared, but they eased away because the charity work that I was doing allowed me to see real life. It allowed me to discover the, the person that I was becoming in terms of I wanted to help people. It allowed me to overcome the struggles I had on the pitch about not being good enough, uh, trying to please everybody. And without knowing it, you know, I know Christians in sport talk about an audience of one. I decided, even when the manager said that I, wasn't, I didn't have a future at the club, I decided that I'm going to play for God. And there was a, a Bible verse that I was able to, to hold on to that gave me the, OK, if I can't please everybody, I can please my God by playing 100% for him, nothing else matters. And it just took away the fear, literally took away the fear. And, and through that, I was able to speak openly because I was a changed man on the pitch, a changed man off the pitch, I saw it in my things going, uh, happening in my family. And, and that brought me through to a place of if I can help people see Jesus through what I do, not even speaking about him, but just and having that opportunity to help, then I'm going to do that. And, and I, I never, it's interesting, I never ever thought that I'd be rewarded for any charity work. Never ever thought in a million years that, you know, I'd be at Windsor Castle receiving an MBE. 
But what that allowed me to do uh, when I received that was be able to say to people, I grew up in Stratford, East London, lived on the 17th floor of a block of flats, had no right to be a footballer, had no right to, to experience some amazing things. But what I've been able to see and what it's been able to tell other people is that, you know, sometimes you focus, you get through things, but you discover your purpose in life some amazing things will happen. But I know when I tried to do it in my own strength, never, never got anywhere. I got so far, but once I knew who I was uh, because of Jesus, what he'd done for me, never looked back. In my primus, MBE, top man, <laughs> top man. <laughs> Great. Well, we're nearly done. Uh, just one thing to come if you fancy staying around for it for five minutes. I pushed Linvoi Primus on how the home nations are going to do in the Euros. Just a few minutes, it'll be interesting to see what he says. But if you're off right now, thank you so much for listening. And thank you to those of you who've let us know what you think about this podcast. If you do get the chance, will you review us on iTunes? It really helps. And if you want to know more about Christians in Sport, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, or on our website. Right, Euros Punditry with Linvoi Primus. We like to find out how much real sports people actually do good punditry. Oof. So two questions for you, Linvoi Primus. <laughs> there we go. The Euros coming up in June. Yeah. A lot of home nations in them. Yes. A lot of home nations. So it'll be the international break and you'll be on holiday. Yeah. <laughs> right. Tell me how we're going to do. Who you want to start with? Right. So got to start with England. All right. Okay. Oh, All you know, right. You've got to start go with England, go on. obviously. Go on. Start with England. So... I believe they'll get out of the, the groups. And I've got to say, the World Cup, I, I said, we'll be lucky to get out of the groups stage, and we didn't. So I, I think we'll get out of the group. I think we're going to play with a freedom. I think there's going to be a, a real sense of expectation for the next big tournament. This is going to give those younger players the taste of what big tournament competition's like. And, um, and I think we're going to be quietly pleased. And, I, and I, I just think that there, there's some young players who have played international football, European football now at a high level, and they've performed well. They've been, you know, a couple of outstanding performances. So I think we're going to be OK. I think they, we're going to get through to the quarters. Uh, all right, quarters for England. Yes. Uh, uh, save the best till last. Yeah, OK, then. Give us the other home nations. <laughs> well, I was going to say Wales, but OK, I'll save them till last, yeah? Okay, yeah, save no the problem. best till yeah, last. Yeah, I'm not too sure if they get out of the group, but that's another story. So Republic of Ireland. With them, uh, you know, their group, I, I, I can't remember their group, but with them, I think the how they qualified was, was brilliant. And and I know a couple of guys who are in the coaching staff and the camaraderie they have is amazing. Their expectation to, to do well in a group, I think that, that's what they want. They want to give their travelling fans that, that reason to celebrate. Uh, if they get out of the group, it's a bonus. I'd okay. say the same for Northern Ireland as well. But I know Mickey O'Neill. I played with him. He was on loan at, at um, Char not Charlton, at Reading with, with us. And I never expected him to be a manager. But... Seeing what he's done, how he's galvanised that team, you know, against the odds to get, you know, to qualify has been amazing. So, again, if they get out of the group, that's going to be a bonus. OK, fair play. So I think I think there's one left. Uh, yeah, because unfortunately the Scots... 
didn't no, make it this time. Yeah, this, this time, time. yeah. Uh, let's go for the Welsh then. Right. Come on in. What do you think? Okay. Should we go for the England Wales game as well? No, or no. Just or if you, listen. If you want to put your neck on the line, this is this is extras. You, people are getting extras here. So if you want to put your neck on the line, we're in extras time. Right. I think in the in the group stages, I think England. Are going to draw with Wales? <laughs> no, my, my gut feeling, and, and this is this is in all honesty, my gut feeling is England will beat Wales, and I don't say that because you know I know Wales are a, a good team, and I know they've got obviously Gareth Bale, and if he's fit and he's flying, he's going to be uh, do well. But I just think England would just have that little bit more because of the experience of playing uh, in uh, a fi- in the finals, Euro finals. Will Wales get out? My gut feeling is no. That's my gut feeling. And Dan, I know you're looking at me like as if to say, Lilin, you can't say that. We're like we're pals and all and everything like that. But uh, that's my gut feeling. And I just, I don't know if it's just a little bit too much. Just, to, But in, in all honesty, to even get to this stage, I think it's been good. And, and it'd been great to see Scotland there as well, wouldn't it? It would have been. Well, you know what they say, Lynn. Better the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. <laughs> so I'll take that on the chin. Uh, we might play this back in June. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah and, remind uh, me. Yeah, remind we'll, me. We'll be back at this one. Thank you very much, Lynn. <laughs>